In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Have any of you ever been to a magic show? Anyone like watching magic shows? They're kind of fun, aren't they? Because these people stand in front of you, and they do all kinds of amazing things that you just know in your heart of hearts are absolutely not possible. How can a person seriously pull a rabbit out of an empty hat? How is that going to work? Or, or how does the person make that scarf disappear when they, you know, they throw it in the air and all of a sudden it's gone? Or how do they know exactly which card you're going to pull out of that deck when you say, I have a, an eight of hearts? How do they know that stuff? Well, of course, all of us know that none of it is for real. It's for fun. It's not really magic. It's not the kind of magic that's forbidden in the Bible. It's for fun. And we all know it's fun because the great, the great joy of watching a magic show is trying to figure out how did they do that? Do any of you do magic? Any of you do magic tricks? It's a skill, isn't it? But the, the basic skill about magic is directing everyone's attention right here so that you can do something over here without them noticing. And so we get blinded by the thing that's apparent and in front of us, and we forget about the little bit of sleight of hand that's going on behind his back or up his sleeve or wherever he's storing that extra coin or card or scarf. We get blinded to the truth of what's going on. And this is related to the Palm Sunday Gospel because that's exactly what happened to the people who gathered and were waving palms and welcoming Jesus as he was coming into Jerusalem, they were blinded by the real truth of what was going on on that day. So let's dig into that a little bit. First of all, we have Jesus. Jesus wasn't blinded. He knew exactly what was going on. But when we look at Jesus' actions, what did he do? He rode into Jerusalem on a donkey. And that comes to us from the prophet Zechariah. In chapter 9, verse 9, Zechariah says, Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout aloud, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you. Righteous and having salvation is he. Humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, on the foal of a donkey. Everybody knew that this passage was about the Messiah the Christ, the Anointed One, the One who had been prophesied from many, many centuries earlier that would come and save his people Israel. Jesus was consciously choosing this prophecy to interpret his actions on that day. And this was no surprise to the people either. The people join in. They know exactly what's going on. When they see Jesus riding into town on a donkey, they turn to Psalm 118. Well, they didn't literally have, you know, like, Bibles like this. It was on scrolls and stuff. But they, they had the Bible memorized. They knew this stuff from the time that they were children. And what they read in the Psalms, what they recited on that day, was from Psalm 118. This is the day that the Lord has made. Let us rejoice and be glad in it. Save us, we pray, O Lord. The Hebrew word there for save us, we pray, is Hosanna. O oh Lord, we pray, give us success. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. We bless you from the house of the Lord. This, too, is a prophecy of the Messiah. 
the anointed one, the Christ, the one who was predicted to come. So where's the confusing part? Where is everyone confused? The Israelites had one understanding of what the Messiah was there to do. And this becomes clear when we look at verse 10 of the Palm Sunday Triumphal Entry Gospel. Just after they say, Hosanna, they say, Blessed is the coming kingdom of our father David. Blessed is the coming kingdom of our father David. Hosanna in the highest. Now, what did they mean about the coming kingdom? That's political language, isn't it? What they meant is that Jesus was riding into Jerusalem just like a triumphant king would ride into his town after a great victory. What they meant was Jesus was becoming their king, literally, like their actual king who was going to go sit on a throne. And they were expecting that Jesus was on his way into Jerusalem to march right up to Pilate's house and knock on the door and say, hey, get out of there. I'm in charge here. That's literally what they thought he was coming to do. And the crowd almost got it right. Jesus was the Messiah. But his mission was something that none of them could anticipate. Jesus was a king, but as he would later tell Pilate, my kingdom is not of this world. Jesus was a victor, but his victory victory would come through suffering and death. And we can see that in another prophecy. This is the one that we read about in the passage from Isaiah today. Except the Israelites didn't see this as a a prophecy of the Messiah. They actually couldn't figure out what to do with it. It's a passage we call the suffering servant passage of Isaiah. And here we read, Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. Yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his wounds we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned every one to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. As Jesus rode into Jerusalem, he had those passages about donkeys and kings on his mind. He had those passages about, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. But he also had this passage on his mind, the suffering servant of Isaiah. And it's in Jesus that the prophecies about the Messiah and the prophecies about the suffering servant all come together and make sense. The crowd pictured a champion riding in to do battle with Pontius Pilate and maybe even to go on and do battle with Caesar himself, the emperor. Jesus pictured himself as a champion ready to do battle, not with Pilate, but with Satan and with death itself. So how were they so far off in understanding the mission of the Messiah? How did they get it so wrong? They were blinded by their own desires and by the cultural expectations of their day. They were also blinded by the fact that 
God hadn't yet revealed it to them. So we've got to let them off the hook just a little bit in that case. Because nobody could have predicted what was going to happen. Nobody could have predicted what Jesus was going to do. Nobody could have predicted that this one who was riding into Jerusalem as a king would later that same week be hanging on a cross, crucified, bloody, beaten, and forsaken. So what I want to ask today is if the Jews were blinded by the purposes and the mission of God, what in our own day blinds us to the movement of God in our own lives, in our own culture, in our own church? There are lots of things that have the potential from, of keeping us from seeing the movement of God today. There was an interesting book written in the 1980s. It was a novel, and it was written by a, a Roman Catholic priest, and the, the book was called Joshua. And this retired Roman Catholic priest was wondering what it would be like if Jesus came back today. How would the people receive him? What would it look like? And this wasn't the, this wasn't the grand end times coming back of Jesus. This was just a, what if, if, what if what happened 2,000 years ago happened today? What would that look like? And so this man named Joshua, by the way, uh, Jesus in Hebrew is Yeshua. So this man named Joshua comes into town, and he, he gets a, a cabin kind of out in the country, away from the town, and he's a carpenter, and he makes these beautiful things, and he sells them for not a whole lot of money. And the people start wondering who this guy is. They get curious about him. But none of them can figure out that it's Jesus. There are all kinds of hints that show, oh yeah, this is Jesus. But none of them can see the truth of who this man is. And so if Jesus were to come today, would we recognize him? If he were to walk through the doors of the church, would we say, oh yeah, that's Jesus? How would we welcome him? What would we do? There are lots of things that can blind us. There are lots of things that can keep us from seeing the movement of God. Some of them are things from our culture. If we think about the politics of our day, I expect that God probably feels very passionately about all of the issues of our day, all the things that we hear about on the radio or the TV, things like guns and school shootings, abortion, euthanasia, immigration, poverty, Taxes, war, education, terrorism, health care, marriage. I'm sure God cares about all those things. But I don't think that God's responses would neatly fall into partisan boxes that we give them today. We can be blinded by the party spirit of our culture. Our Congress right now is blinded by a party spirit that says, we're over here and you're over there and we're not going to meet anywhere in the middle. But as Christians, we can't be blinded by party politics. We have to be informed by God's word. We have to be informed by God's heart, which he reveals to us in the pages of the scriptures. And so we can't let the politics of our culture blind us. Similarly, our culture has lots of values. And we each have lots of values ourselves that drive our decisions and responses to situations. And hopefully most of our values as Christians are grounded on God's word. But I guarantee you that some of the things that we hold dear as values are things that come to us not from God's word, but from our culture. 
And not all of those values are bad values, but we have to be careful to recognize which ones are coming to us from God and which ones are coming to us from our culture. Another thing that can blind us is our expectations. Some people have expectations in their theology with very detailed theological speculations about exactly what the return of Jesus is going to look like. There are whole denominations that have divided and split based on very fine, minute details of what we call eschatology or or end times theology. There are whole sets of novels that speculate about what the coming of Jesus is going to look like. But as Anglicans, we tend to focus more on Jesus' instruction to be ready for him to return and not so much on the manner of his return. Always watching, always ready, always waiting, always looking for signs, always asking the Holy Spirit to work in our lives so that we'll be ready when that day comes. Or sometimes we present our plans to God and we get mad when he doesn't fulfill them. Have you ever done that? I've done that. We forget that God is the master planner and that our plans might just happen to be in conflict with his plans. We forget that God knows us better than we know ourselves and that his plans might just be a little bit better than our own plans might be. Actually, they're a lot better than our own plans might be. We might be blinded by false expectations of a false gospel of salvation that doesn't involve transformation. What is it that we're being saved from? When Jesus came into Jerusalem, those words, Hosanna, mean, oh, save us, we pray. What is it that Jesus is saving us from? Are we expecting Jesus to save us from hell? Certainly that's one of the things Jesus saves us from. But our faith in him is not just fire insurance. We don't believe in God just so we get to heaven when we die. Jesus came to save us from hell, but also from sin and death. And Jesus offers us abundant life, not just in heaven, but starting right now. In the Gospel of John, he says, I came that they may have life and have it to the full. Fullness of life comes from Jesus. We try to find a full life in all kinds of other places, but all of those places are blinding us to the one true place where we can find fulfillment in our lives. And that's with relationship with Jesus, who made us. That's what we were designed for. It's what God made us for, to be in relationship with him. And our sin has broken us. It's kept us away from that relationship. It's prevented our communication with him. But Jesus came that we might be restored to God, that we might be reconciled, that we might have that life that we lost. We might be blinded by our fear. Fear of what it would look like to follow Jesus in the places he would take us. Fear of what it would do for our finances. Fear of... Fear of what it would do for... uh, for our pain or suffering? Is it going to hurt to follow Jesus? Is it going to hurt me physically? Is it going to hurt me emotionally? 
What if he sends me to Africa? I might get sick. We might be afraid of humiliation. What if I tell my friend about Jesus and they don't believe me? What if I stand up in front of a group of my workers and tell them that I believe in Jesus and and they laugh at me? And finally, I think we're blinded by our pride. Pride is the root of so many of the sins in our lives. And when we have the sin of pride, we're kind of like a a two-year-old that insists on doing it themselves. We want to do it our way. We don't want anybody's help. I don't want your help, and I sure don't want God's help. I want to do it on my own. And that's the sin of pride. When we try to do it on our own without relying on God, we're blinded to all the wonderful things that he might have for us. So we're all blind. We all can't see clearly. What do we do? Where do we go? How can we see God in the way he desires to be seen? The first thing is to pray. We already talked about how all of us were made for relationship with God, and without that relationship, we're all broken, and we're all missing the fullness that he has for us. Prayer restores our relationship. Jesus restores the relationship initially, but prayer keeps that relationship going. God wants us to talk to him. He wants us to listen to him. And if we take the time to listen, he'll show us the plans that he has for us. We also need to immerse ourselves in God's word. The voices of our culture speak so loudly, and they tell us so many lies. We need God's voice to be louder than the voice of our culture. And the way that we can do that is by reading his word, his message to us. When we open these pages, we find truth. And truth combats all the lies of our culture, all the lies of our own expectations, all the lies of our fear or our pride. The scriptures are like a mirror, and we hold it up and we look at it, and they show us who we really are, both the good and the bad. And so daily we need to be in his word. Finally, I think we all need to remember that Jesus' apostles and disciples all got it wrong at one point or another. I mean, think about Peter. Goodness. This is a guy, he was so enthusiastic. This is a guy that Jesus said, on this rock I will build my church. He was the, you know, the leader of the apostles. And yet, he's the guy that this week we're going to remember he denies Jesus three times before the dawn comes. We're going to remember that he wasn't there when Jesus was dying on the cross. What about Judas? Judas? who walked with Jesus for all those years and yet turned and betrayed him for 30 pieces of silver? What about James and John, who were asking Jesus if they could have seats on his left and right when he comes into his kingdom? All of them got it wrong at one point or another, and you're going to get it wrong too. But the thing that separates the disciples from those who refuse to believe is their humility. They were willing to remain open to the movement of God, and they were willing to be sensitive to God's correction when they got it wrong. And so the final thing we need to remember is to be humble, to recognize the fact 
that none of us have it all figured out. Because God hasn't yet revealed it all to us. And when we can come to that place, when we can come to a place of humility before God, coming out of prayer, coming out of his word, then we're ready for God to take us for a ride. And who knows where that ride's going to go. But I guarantee it's the best ride of your life. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this day of praise. And we thank you also as we remember your suffering. We pray, Lord, that as we enter into this Holy Week, that you would guide us and direct us. That you would turn our hearts, turn our thoughts towards you. That you'd help us to remember your suffering and those mighty acts by which we're saved. We thank you, Lord, for the cross. We thank you that you were willing to pay the price for us so that we might be reconciled to you. Lord, we offer ourselves to you. We ask you to do with us what you would do. Help us to set aside our expectations, our pride, our fear. Help us to set aside anything that gets in the way of following you. And help us to run with patience the race that is set before us. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Amen.